All right, teammates, welcome to the Blueprint Leadership Podcast. I'm Khalith Wright, the 18th Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. Now, during this time, you'll hear from some of my friends and some of my favorite leaders across the Air Force and around the world, and we'll be discussing all things leadership. Our goal is to provide insights, tips, and ultimately, we want to help current and future leaders find their path and reach their leadership goals. Now, we call it Blueprint, but as we all know, there's no one way to lead. And so we just want to share some of our experiences, give you all some advice, and hopefully we can help you find your path and reach your potential as a leader. I've always sought to be a leader that leads by example in everything they do. And so even though I grew up as an armored reconnaissance guy, um, I knew that uh, in order to be the best, you had to go out and prove it. And that's why I chose to serve in the 82nd Airborne Division for so many years. I chose to attend and graduate Ranger School. Uh, and I chose to attend and graduate Pathfinder School. And I chose to go to the tough assignments because I, I wanted to be, again, that leader that was leading by example and to show every man and woman that may be up under my influence that they have to look no further than me to be the example. Ladies and gentlemen, those were words of wisdom from our guest, who happens to be a very good friend. He is the best guest we've ever had. He's also the first guest we've ever had. It's an honor to have him. He is a personal friend who kicks our butts at PT every chance he gets. He is the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also known as SEAC Number 3, Command Sergeant Major John Wayne Truxell. Thanks, Kay Wright. I appreciate being here. Uh, it's truly an honor uh, to be here with you, my friend, but to be your first guest that you've done, that you have the confidence and faith in me being your first guest, uh, kind of up the bar a little bit. So I'm going to make sure I'm on my A game here today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we, we go way back. And, and again, thank you for all the, the leadership and mentorship over, over the years. Uh, so this is our inaugural show. And uh, I think we should start off just really kicking kicking right in and talking about about leadership so uh why don't you break down your path and how you became the third senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff yeah so i've uh i've been in 37 years now i've been a sergeant major for 19 years um and when i retire i'll have 20 years as a sergeant major which generally for some folks is a career you know but um uh, I grew up in a man in maneuver fire and effects field. I I'm a reconnaissance guy. Uh, a lot of time in the 82nd Airborne Division, a lot of time in striker units. But what's unique about me, and it really hasn't been uh, a planned out career path, is that for about the last nine years, I've been in joint and multinational types of assignments. Uh, as the ISAF Joint Command, uh, Command Senior Enlisted Leader in Afghanistan, uh, part of the rebalance as U.S. Army First Corps in the Pacific uh, as part of uh, the Indo-PACOM team. And then at U.S. Forces Korea prior to this job and for the last four years in this job. So I think to get to become the SEAC, um, those opportunities that I had in the joint and multinational environment certainly set me up uh, to be interviewed for this job. And then uh, I think that might have been a deciding factor when General Dunford selected me. So uh, it's one of the things that I've really, over the last four years, am trying to get after is more joint opportunities. I certainly appreciate uh, General Goldfein and your focus on developing joint leaders, which has helped us a lot. Uh, but I think uh, 
we can be more predictable in the future. So po- potentially we could say this is the person that needs to uh, continue on and compete as the SEAC. I think mine was more, you know, by accident than it was by design. And uh, But in the end, it all worked out. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure if it was by accident, <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate the sentiment none, nonetheless. On your social media, uh, I always see whenever you go out and you, you visit either the troops or you're doing something important for our nation, uh, you have hashtag best job I ever had. Uh, what's, what's that all about? I mean, what, what do you think makes it the best job? So, you know, because of the faith and confidence that General Dunford and now General Milley have in me and, you know, Secretary Carter, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Shanahan, and now Secretary Esper have in me to be able to get out and gain the pulse of the force for them. It's allowed me to go anywhere in the world that I felt I needed to go and visit troops where um, that, that may be off the beaten path. So when I have the opportunity to, I've been to Syria three times, Iraq uh, 10 times, Afghanistan nine times, Turkey 11 times, and, uh, and then to places like Somalia, Yemen, Libya, the Korean Peninsula, all of these places where we have troops that are either building partner capacity or they are actually engaged in combat or assuring our allies and, uh, and attracting new partners, it allows me to get out and gain that pulse of the force. And I, if I weren't the SEAC and I didn't have, you know, the, the trust and confidence of the chairman and the, and the secretary of defense, I wouldn't be able to get out to some of these locations out there where we have troops, where we have airmen that are out doing yeoman's work and you never hear about them because they're off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. So that's why I use that hashtag because it, it has just given me an opportunity to have the global pulse of the force regardless of what service it is. And uh, and that's why I use that hashtag because this is truly the best job I've ever had. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I think uh, uh, mm-hmm. all of your followers uh, love it and, and can uh, and, and that can actually see it uh, when yeah. they engage with you, whether it's on social media or in person. Now, you talked about uh, all those trips to Syria and Yemen and, and uh, many other Turkey and many other places. That's a lot of travel and it's a lot of overseas travel. Yeah. So so how as a leader, I think many of our listeners will be interested in, man, how do you maintain balance or harmony with that? amount of uh, travel that you have to do for the job well you and i just talked about this before we came on air and uh one thing we have to realize when you become a member of the joint chiefs of staff senior enlisted advisor team whether you're the SEAC, the chief master sergeant of the air force or, or the senior enlisted leader of any of the services that you're coming into this job for four years and all of us come in and we we are going to go out and get after the mission and, and everything. And we forget that over four years, it's got to be a marathon and not a sprint. And you and I both shared that we came out of the starting blocks, <laughs> you know, moving about 100 miles an hour. Oh, man, yeah. um, but one thing I've learned is uh, is that I have to be predictive in, in how I make sure that I'm getting out and doing the things that the SEAC position requires me to do but also that I'm putting in quality time with my family or time for me to execute an acronym that I like to use called REST. That means read, exercise, sleep, and think. And there's times that, and I'm sure you and Tanya are the same way, there's times Sandra and I will pull a calendar out and we will say, okay, this day right here we're going to spend together. 
Now, I hate going out and going shopping. You know, I'm one of those guys that, uh, you know, just hates going out and being at. But if it's a day that I can take a break from doing the duties and I can spend it uh, as part of quality time with my wife, I'll do it. But, uh, again, you know, it's not something I like to do, but it's something I understand that, you know, in order to make sure that I'm balancing the time between the duties and life as, you know, a military spouse or, or a, you know, with my military spouse, I, I've got to make sure that I am cognizant of that and, and program in that quality time. Otherwise, it could be, you know, a, a rough time at the house, you oh, know. Yeah. So, uh, so I make sure that over the course of the last four years, I've kind of gotten better at it, even though the first year I was terrible at it, 270 days on the road. And, uh, you know, and I know you're the same way as me mm-hmm. um but i've kind of learned and uh and i've kind of gotten better and more cognizant of making sure that i take care of myself and my family i know one of the ways that you keep yourself in good shape and able to travel is the uh, extensive amount of uh, fitness your fitness regimen, yeah. which you you invite uh, the senior leaders across the military uh quite often um and and if people are following you on social media uh, they always see another hashtag uh, PME hard can you tell us what that stands for and what that means to you yeah so this was something I adopted about 11 years ago when I was part of surge brigade number four in Iraq during the surge and I realized in a hurry um, we were up against one of the most insidious enemies we've ever faced in al-qaeda in Iraq and it was at the time when um, there was a lot of uh, unrest amongst the Sunni and Shia population in Iraq, so it was a very uh, rough time. And and I noticed that 130 degrees out, my troops were carrying 60 to 80 pounds of kit on any given day over rough and uneven terrain. And the minute we came into theater, we were enduring about 200 attacks a day across the brigade. Uh, and I realized that Um, bad things can happen to the best kind of organizations and in order to be able to be resilient and bounce back and have uh, the desired effect that we're trying to have either in this case against an enemy or when we're trying to solve problems or whatever that we had to have uh, the utmost resiliency and so PME hard it means physically mentally and emotionally hard and I think that's so when we talk about people being tough, I think uh, that's one aspect, but I think we need to go a little bit farther and they need to be hard, meaning um, that uh, they are not easily penetrable by mm-hmm. conditions outside or, or adversity or anything like that. So I kind of adopted that in the, the, the foundation is the physical part because I think the more healthy and fit we are, um, it's just a given we'll be more mentally and emotionally resilient. So I've kind of used this hashtag over the, over the last 11 years to try and direct uh, leaders and, and troops of all the services on we got to be prepared for the worst day of our life. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily in a combat scenario. Every day, and, and I know you talk about this all the time to the airmen, you know, and nowadays when, when someone gets a no-pay due, that is a significant event in not only the service member's life but their family's life or if they have an auto accident in or if uh just anything that happens out there they lose their wallet or something like that that's a significant emotional event and how to deal with that and get beyond okay the event 
and how do I bounce back and how do I continue to move forward? I think we've got to be pre- we've got to prepare people uh, for the worst day of their life and uh, certainly dealing with death and things like that uh, in in combat, but also in everyday life. So the more physically um, prepared we are to to deal with adversity, and the more mentally and emotionally. Uh, sound we are, uh, I think we'll be much better off. I couldn't agree more. You know, so one of the, one of the issues that I've been um, tackling during my time as a chief is is resilience and yeah. and really kind of centered around what we call our comprehensive airman fitness pillars, and that's uh, physical, mental, spiritual, and social. So sometimes we take for granted the importance of having a great uh, team team around you. And uh, so, so I, man, I think we all appreciate the effort that you put into uh, your your PME, uh, and I would call it a somewhat as somewhat of a battle cry, right? It gives people Absolutely. something to, to think about. Hey, what's the what's the a typical day like in the life of the SEAC uh, when you're not in Syria uh, or doing some of that stuff? So uh, I have a pretty um, lockstep uh, personal battle rhythm. So um, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning. Every morning, I go downstairs, I get a cup of coffee, I go into my uh, skiff at my house, and I get on my uh, all three of my networks to uh, see what's happened overnight uh, and where um, we are in, in the critical places around the world and how the troops are doing. And uh, after that, you know, 5 o'clock, I'm doing PT, and uh, I'm usually done by 6, 6.30, and I'm generally in the office at 7 so that I can uh, attend uh, the director of the joint staff's meeting at 7.30. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, you and I had this discussion before, you know, sometimes people, you know, especially leaders, they don't know when to go home. Right. They, they think uh, <laughs> that the later you stay, the harder you're working. Right. And in some cases, uh, I don't buy that. You know, and, and I think... Uh, we have to train people uh, when to go home mm-hmm. in a timely manner, you know. And and then, you know, as we talked about resiliency, when to know it's time to take a break and maybe you don't have to be in at 7 o'clock in the morning, you mm-hmm. know. So I understand that when the work is done during the day with my staff and my staff says we've accomplished all missions, I know that if anything comes up, I've got a skiff at my house. So I don't have to be handcuffed to my office here in the Pentagon. And I try to make it uh, that my team knows that unless there's something significant going on, which on the joint staff can happen a lot, um, that we're going to go home in a timely manner and allow them to get home and spend some time with their family. The last thing I want is that my team is going home at 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night, and they get home and they might be able to see their kids for like 10 or 15 minutes because it's a school night, Mm -hmm. and then their kids are off to bed, you know, so... I think as a joint force, we can do better at this all around in terms of, you know, knowing when to go home. But anyways, to finish that off, I get home, I have dinner with my wife and everything, and I'm normally in the rack about uh, 8.30 at night because part of that acronym REST is sleep. Mm -hmm. And I learned this from General Dunford because General Dunford was big on he's going to get his six hours of sleep. Now, he may have to sacrifice and not do PT the next day. But he's going to get his sleep because in, in the, the job as the chairman, he had to provide best military advice to the SECDEF and the president. So he had to be on his A game all the time. So I kind of learned from him that, and as I've gotten older, sleep is as important to me now as, uh, 
as my workout routines. And, okay. and, and eating right is also extremely important to me as well. And so when I'm in the building, I'm eating six times a day, but they're very small meals. And I make sure, you know, that 2,000 calorie a day thing that uh, your nutritionists talk about, mm-hmm. they're generally right about that, you know, and especially a guy like me at five foot nine, 180 pounds. So I make sure that I'm looking out for myself uh, uh, throughout the day and my team to make sure that, you know, we're not just, you know, needlessly hanging around the Pentagon to say, Hey, we got home at seven o'clock, you know, or we yeah. stayed till seven o'clock. So a couple of things in there I, I want to I yeah, pick absolutely. at. Uh, one was the importance of modeling as leaders, right? Modeling the right types of behavior and not uh, staying at work for extended hours and, and maintaining and having balance. And uh, but I, but I'll, I was also intrigued by, you know, your schedule from seven o'clock on is, you know, fairly, fairly standard, uh, mm-hmm. like most of us in the Pentagon or in senior level positions. Uh, but you seem to have um, gotten the key to mastering the mornings uh, up at 3.30 and, and kind of getting all your stuff done. Yeah. Like there's probably nobody uh, emailing or texting you at, at, at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, what's the key to, to be able to master the morning and, and be consistent at uh, getting being productive that early? What I say about from 3 a.m. until I get in this building at 7 a.m., it is the most serene time out of my day and out of my time as the SEAC because I control it all because mm-hmm. you, you, you hit it on the head. There's nobody emailing me <laughs> at 3.30 in the morning. There's uh, generally, you know, there, there might be some uh, spot reports that come out across, the, you know, our higher level networks that uh, will catch my attention. But generally, you know, I can enjoy my coffee. I can read email. I can watch the news or whatever. And it is just peaceful. And it allows me to prepare myself for, you know, starting at 7 o'clock when I come in the Pentagon, how all of a sudden the day is just going to speed up Mm -hmm. significantly. So that is my time to not only prepare but to reflect and uh, and just, uh, you know, relax a little bit prior to the the storm coming of what's known as working in the Pentagon. And I think you got the other part right is you're in the bed early, so you get the right amount of sleep that allows you to get up and master the morning. So, And, you know, if I could make a comment on that, sometimes leaders, you know, carry that lack of sleep and things like it's a badge of of, uh, being hard or something like that. When I see someone, a leader, especially in an operational environment, that is working themselves into a frenzy and are not getting the required sleep. I know, and you know this too, because you've got significant operational experience too, that over a period of time, their performance is going to erode. Mm -hmm. And regardless of how much we talk about, oh, you know, I only had an hour and a half sleep last night. To me, as a leader, that's somebody I got to keep my eye on Mm -hmm. because generally at a certain point, that's going to come back to bite them. So I think as leaders, and and you, you talked about being the example that we need to be the one saying, hey, get your six, seven hours of sleep a night. Get your Take time during the day to get your PT in. Make sure you're eating right. Nobody loves cheeseburgers better than me. <laughs> and I will tell you, nobody loves going to IHOP and getting a steak omelet, you know, better than me. But I understand that's got to be in moderation. Yeah. Because if I ate like that all the time, uh, I'd probably be kicking myself out of the military for being overweight, you know. So, um if you and I are setting the example on, you know, this REST acronym, mm-hmm. 
then uh, I think leaders behind us will follow and, and we'll be able to get after some of the challenges we have in our military. Yeah, I say you've done a really good job uh, modeling the, the right behavior for, for all of us, so, so thanks for that. Uh, man, you're the most senior enlisted person in the whole United States military. Tell me, what's the most challenging part of the job? Before you can uh, be effective in this job, uh, in terms of what you do as the individual, you've got to be a team player, mm-hmm. and you've got to uh, you've got to ha- master the art of building a team. So, you know, the Defense Senior Enlisted Leader Council. You know, you and I have been on these things for three years now, <laughs> and I think the toughest job, and I think <laughs> one of the key reasons why we have a SEAC, is how do you bridge the Joint Chiefs of Staff Senior Enlisted Advisors? who are responsible for policy, organize, equip, and train, and provide forces to the combatant commands and those combatant command senior enlisted leaders who are responsible for employing forces in the operational environment. And the toughest thing I've had to do is to get the top 20 senior enlisted to come together and play nice with each other. (laughs) Now, I say that in a joking (laughs) manner because uh, you and I have... Right. Have, you know, there's been a couple times you and I have had to pull some somebody out and have a little discussion with them, yeah. you know. Um, but that's also the most uh, fruitful part of being the SEAC is that when, when all of a sudden you can take the top 20 senior enlisted, bring them together as a team, and they're all rolling in the right direction, and we've bridged this organized, equipped, trained, and operational environment, uh, uh, you know, divide – I, I think it's just a good thing. And and I will tell you, last uh, DSELC we had, when we did that PT session out there, mm-hmm. and, you know, and and you were out there, and, and uh, I, I put your teammates with one of uh, our Air Force COCOM guys and one of our Air Force Combat Support Agency guys, and you guys were out getting after that. I made sure we took plenty of pictures because I was going to saturate the Air Force with this picture <laughs> of their senior enlisted uh, person in the entire Air Force plus one of their combatant command and combat support agency guys. But, uh, you know, I've tried to be humble through this whole process and understand that, you know, as the SEAC, you don't have any authority. You know, the chairman is not a commander. Mm -hmm. The chairman is the global integrator. The chairman is, uh, you know, a coordinating authority in some aspects. And so I, I looked at my job as, you know, I'm a coordinating element for the Joint Chiefs of Staff Senior Enlisted Advisors and the COCOM Senior Enlisted Advisors and also try to be that conduit between you all and the Chairman and the Secretary of Defense. And so I try to make sure that uh, I'm a team player and uh, and I want to be teammates and friends uh, as opposed to, you know, some guy that stands up here and says, you know, you guys are going to do this, you guys are going to do this. Because uh, one, I don't the position doesn't have that authority. But two, I don't think that's a very good way to go about business when you have the most senior enlisted in the Department of Defense, and you're trying to get to an end state and whatever it might be, yeah. and you gotta you gotta have uh, synergy and buy-in. So it's 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 kind of hard to get there if you're stuck on yourself and you think that you're God's gift to leadership. No, I tell you, you've done a great job. I mean, we're a rowdy bunch, right? Yeah. And and none none of us are short of opinions and and thoughts about the world and yeah. the things that. 
that we all have to tackle. But I tell you, just uh, watching you uh, over these last three years in those meetings with all the senior enlisted leaders has been a tremendous learning experience for me, uh, just taking notes on your level of patience, uh, the way you build a team. I appreciate uh, it. And and you can be tough uh, with with us when when you need to be, but but mostly you allow everybody to express themselves and have their opinion, and and also keep us moving in the right direction. Yeah. So we appreciate that. Uh, I'm I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we're going to turn it over <clears throat> um, to the phone lines and kind of social media. We reached out to social media and asked them to send us some questions. But uh, last question from me was, hey, what what's something uh, about you that the uh, forces would be surprised to know what's inter- an interesting fact or hobby or anything that you think people might be surprised to know about you you know I'm I'm pretty open about who I am you know I've been married to my wife Sandra for 36 years yeah. we have three adult children we have four grandchildren but one thing you know I think that has kept me grounded over the besides having a great wife like Sandra is that I haven't forgotten where I came from mm. And I, I try to make sure that I can look through that lens of an Airman First Class or a Lance Corporal or a PFC, you know. So my wife and I still love to do the things we did when we were dating. We still love to karaoke. We still love to dance. Uh, we, we still love to have some adult beverages in moderation. And anybody that comes to our house knows that when you show up at the house, you ain't leaving until you sing. So... Um, <laughs> I'm a huge sports fan, you know, uh, football and mixed martial arts. UFC is, you know, uh, what I'm all about. I'm being from Iowa. I'm a University of Iowa fan. But uh, all the years I spent at Fort Bragg, I'm also a huge Carolina Panther fan and have been there since 1995. I've been that fan since 1995. So I'm a person that on duty, you're going to get 110% out of me. When I'm off duty, I'm going to spend time with my family. We're going to enjoy ourselves, and we're not afraid to laugh at ourselves. It's okay <laughs> because, you know, it's not American Idol. It's karaoke, yeah. you know. And, uh, and then if we, don't, you know, we don't mind going out and, uh, you know, and going to an event or going to a club and, and dancing and, and relaxing and enjoying ourselves. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, as I promote this PT and stuff like that, but, you know, if you work hard, you train hard, you fight hard, you know, it's okay to relax yeah. and, and take your time and, and play. Man, I recently had a, a bad karaoke experience. I should have been coming to your house and practicing. And well, would, so, you know, ready. being who you are, uh, there and people that know I love karaoke, yeah. I got like 12 spot reports on the <laughs> K-Wright karaoke experience. And, yeah, it, and, it, and it went from senior airman all the way to command chief master sergeant that were sending me these reports. Yeah, so. yeah. One of the one of the things that uh, that I took away from the experience was, uh, and I joked, it was just a bad experience, right? Uh, because I can't sing, but uh, I joked with the crowd at the time that, hey, this is my shot at being vulnerable. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, um, I, I took away from your last statement is allowing people to see exactly who you are. I don't. I don't think as leaders we do it enough. Yes. Uh, to allow people to see, I think sometimes when folks see a command sergeant major or a chief master sergeant they think man these guys must have it together now and they must have always had it together and and uh, they don't know hey man we're just regular people like like everybody else so i like that you uh share your sports teams the panthers and uh, the amount of time you spend with sandra and karaoke and some of the other things that you enjoy so if we want to be approachable which i think we have to be 
then then the troops need to know we're human. You know, I mean, you know, we're we're just like them. We put our pants on the same way. You know, we drive a car the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've just been doing this for you know three decades, yeah. and we've just been uh, you know honored to be able to get in the positions we are nowadays. But uh, you know, I I like the way you operate as well because you you know you you're the same way. You're not afraid to show people that you're human. And I think in today's day and age. A senior leader that tries to block themselves out from showing that they're human, it's going to be counter to what we're trying to do mm-hmm. to get our young troops to open up about um, what are, what's going on with them and everything. So uh, I think uh, it's something important that we have to continue to get after. I enjoy uh, being open, and, and it allows, uh, I think, both you and I to connect to our, our service members. All right, we're going to go to our uh, questions. Uh, we got with us today Senior Master Sergeant Harry Bubba Kibbe. So, Bubba, over to you. Thanks, Chief. Okay, our first question comes from Twitter, Siak. And Daily Forethought, at Daily Forethought, would like to know, what are some positive leadership practices that are just as effective, whether you're the Siak or whether you're a brand-new junior NCO supervising your first troop? So I think, you know, the intangibles are the most important about leading. A leader that comes to work every day and brings energy, uh, provides purpose, motivation, direction, inspiration, but also discipline to their formation or the men and women that they're in charge of. I think if you do that, um, everything else is easy. Too many times we look for tangibles to use to... uh, get after uh, influencing young men and women when really it you know when you're talking about things like charisma and and stuff like that that's an intangible and a leader don't be afraid to be energetic now that doesn't mean be obnoxious you know or overbearing it means come in and provide energy so that the men and women have a spark to say you know what I want to be like that person or I want to strive for excellence because my leader is leading by example and showing us how to get after it. I think if you lead that way and you're engaged every day, and what I mean being engaged isn't just being transactional and saying, hey, if you show up to work on time, you do what I tell you to do, I'll send you home at appropriate time. You have to be transformational, meaning that you are taking young men and women and, you know, focusing them and, and transforming them into reach their untapped potential and to be something that they never thought they could be. And that has to come from a leader of inspiration, charisma, and, uh, and energy. And, and that, I think if a leader does that, everything else is easy. Uh, let me just jump in here yeah. because uh, one of the things that we often talk about is uh, all the things that you described and you mentioned the word leadership uh, several times. Um, there is a difference between being a leader and a manager. Absolutely. And and, uh, it, and it's not necessarily a bad thing that many of our organizations uh, are led by good managers versus great, great leaders. Right. And uh, what advice would you have for someone that's striving, that has all the management skills and processes, uh, what, what things can or should they do to improve their leadership skills that – to that ability to influence, to inspire, yeah. to develop charisma. We have to never forget it's about the people in our organization. You know, some of our people that are in management positions are responsible for millions upon millions of dollars worth of equipment, 
uh, and things like that. But in the end, the greatest treasure we have is people. And how we treat people, even if you're in a more of a managerial role instead of a leadership role, the, the way you treat people will have a long way in terms of, you know, the dignity and respect that's felt throughout the organization and really the effectiveness of the organization. So, uh, again, regardless of what someone's job is, whether they're more on the managerial side or more on the leadership side, they have to remember that even if you're someone that's a bean counter and you're worried about how much money uh, we're spending and things like that or how much good stewards of resources we have to be, in the end, somewhere in that uh, AFSC or MOS or rate that you're you're in that may be in a managerial position, somewhere in the end, humans are going to be influenced by some decisions you're making. And that's one of the things I talk about on the joint staff all the time. We do plans, policies, and strategy on employment of the joint force and how do we support unified command plans. But in the end, we can sit up here and move military icons around on what we think we where we need uh, forces at and where we need to allocate them but in the end underneath that icon are thousands of men and women and we can't forget that that's our greatest treasure and that's always got to be the focus of what we do yeah absolutely thanks that was for daily forethought and the next question comes from reddit and um reddit is an anonymous site so uh <laughs> people have some pretty creative usernames <laughs> This question comes from Goldfish Suit. Goldfish Suit would like to know, what new thing have you tried this year that failed, and how often do you fail? Uh, I fail quite often. Um, I think as a leader, if you are not uh, pushing your ability to learn and grow and develop, even if you're the SEAC, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, or wh whoever you are, if you're not pushing that envelope, to make yourself better every day and you don't fail at things um, and then try to learn from it and, uh, and apply some best practices and how to get after it, then I think you're done as a leader. So I really can't put my finger on one thing I've failed uh, this year. I mean, I've done a lot of things where I've tried to push the envelope in terms of development of senior enlisted and I've ran into roadblocks. But... Um, I don't look at those as blocking obstacles. I look at those really as turning obstacles that get me to look at alternative paths to get after the desired effect I'm trying to get after. So I think, uh, and I think you're probably the same way, we, you know, there's too many times that I have done something wrong or failed or did not accomplish what I tried to accomplish, but I don't allow that to be a roadblock. I allow that to just be something that causes me to go to a different path. Uh, failure is part of the process. It's part of growth, and none of us should be ashamed of it. Uh, some some people say, "Hey, if you're not failing, it means you're not trying." But uh, I, I would I would say it's as as le certainly as leaders, no matter at, no matter what level uh, you operate, uh, you have to be bold. You have to take some risk, and you have to not be afraid of failing. You just got to be able to dust yourself off. And uh, some of the things that Siak talked about earlier. Uh, the physical, the mental, uh, the emotional, his PME hard concept uh, really helps when you fall on your face. It helps you be able to pick back up and keep moving through whatever the challenges might be. So. And if I could uh, just add on, you know, sometimes in these jobs, because of circumstances, because of commitments and everything, you can almost uh, feel yourself being in quicksand. 
you know, not literally in quicksand, but figuratively. And and you may not see it because you are so focused on getting to the objective on whatever you're doing. I'll give you an example. It was two years ago um, that in the month of June, I spent uh, out of the 30 days in June, I spent 29 on the road. I was gone for 12 or 13 days. I came back for one day with my family and then went for 17 more days over into Eastern Europe in places like Ukraine, Romania, Poland, and places like that. And I was about at the about the halfway of that second trip, so about three straight weeks on the road. And uh, my public affairs NCO at the time, Master Sergeant Rob Couture, and I were in a hotel uh, in Kiev right after we had done you know all of our engagements. And we were going up to our hotel room, and he says to me, Hey, Siak, you think we bit off a little bit too much on this? And I said, hey, absolutely not. You know, uh, you know, we're all good and everything. And then it was about two days later, and I just felt this crush of just being exhausted and, you know, emotionally drained and everything. So here we were back on the hotel elevator going back up, and I said, hey, I think you're right. And I think we got to get better at our time management here as we move forward. So uh, sometimes we as leaders may not see it, which is why we hire these all-star people on our staffs to advise us when we think uh, we're taking on too much. Okay, sir, our last question comes from Unbound Redditor, who uh, has a badge, uh, is a cyber systems operator. They'd like to know, how can leaders at all levels become more involved in their troops' lives without being overly intrusive and break the mentality that this is just a job? For example, leaders being leaders instead of managers with quotas. And I believe you kind of addressed it earlier, but if yeah. you wouldn't mind elaborating on that. So one of the things I used to, you know, and I still use it today, you know, at all levels, you know, I would tell my troops that I was responsible for. I said, look, I love you as I'm, much as I love my children. So if I'm getting in your butt, it's out of love. It's not out of hate, Okay. I want you to be the best that you can be. Uh, I want you to live your life uh, to the best that you can be. So if I'm coming into your barracks or dormitory room to check on you, it's because I care about you. It's not because I want to be this overbearing jerk that just wants to invade your privacy all the time. Too many times we have risk-averse leaders that feel like, well, I'm, I'm imposing on the troops here. And I know when you and I grew up, you know, we had folks in, in our barracks and dormitories every day, or they were checking my automobile out every day. My leaders were checking my automobile out. And even back then, and, and Kay Wright, I'm sure you're the same way, I didn't look at it as, man, this guy's really taking care of me. I was like, man, why is this guy on my butt? You know, and he's, and until I started becoming a leader and I saw it was because they cared about me. So I think uh, an engaged leader that is constantly dialoguing with their troops and they're building this team and the team is born out of dignity and respect. I think the more they're like that, the more of this intrusiveness or invasion of privacy stuff will kind of go away because the troops realize their leader genuinely cares about them. And I think that's what we have to do to get after this because you'll be amazed at uh, what you can find out when troops are in their off-duty time, and uh, they might be in the dormitories of the barracks, or they might be off, you know, in some of the places they hang out. Yeah, I, I would say sometimes it is difficult, and I agree. Yeah. When I was growing up, I had a really, really tough 
mentor who did everything for me out of love uh, to include put me in the chokehold a couple of times and some put me in a lot of really you know uncomfortable situations all, all in the effort to try to help me one, one of the things that I would recommend to our our young folks today is trust your gut uh, sometimes your gut will tell you whether someone really has your best interest in mind. And uh, sometimes they can be really, really nice and they may not have your best interest in mind or they can be really, really tough and they actually do. Um, they bring that tough love and, and they, want, they want the best for you. So sometimes you just got to trust your gut and trust that uh, people are doing the, the right things and they're trying to get you to 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 a better place in your life and, and in your career. Yeah, uh, that's something that that I had to turn to several times in my <clears throat> career, especially as a young man. Is man, what's what is going on? What is what what is this guy's angle? But uh, whenever I, I would go to my gut, uh, it would it would help me kind of understand. Okay, I, I don't like it, but he has my best interest in mind. Okay, thank you for sending in those questions for our listeners out there who would like to engage. You can find us on Facebook. On Facebook, <laughs> on Facebook at uh, Simsaf official, Reddit at Team eighteen OCMSAF, and on Twitter at Simsaf eighteen. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Harry. Thank you. So, this is a huge military issue, and certainly a big issue for us in the Air Force that we've been dealing with suicide. So we've for the last five years in the Air Force, we've been right around one hundred or so uh, suicides, plus or minus one or two. Uh, this year we're mid-October and we're already at about 112. I think we had two maybe over this weekend. And um, what what are your thoughts on how we can keep our service members from choosing suicide as an option? So uh, this is a great question, and and I'm with you. Uh, in over the last four years, uh, looking at all the services, suicide rates. Just when I think you know, we're trending in the right direction. All of a sudden, we go in the opposite direction. And here's here's one thing I've learned in 37 years of service and four year, the last four years doing this job is there are stigmas still out there in terms of troops wanting to get the help that they think they need. And we have to understand that uh, as, as much as we focus on this physical uh, health and, and resilience and everything, this uh, behavioral health is a huge issue. And it's just not with the young troops. Throughout the ranks, you know, this is something that we have to be cognizant. We have to accept it, that sometimes people may need some help. Mm -hmm. And whenever we, you know, kind of, uh, you know, marginalize uh, that behavioral health is a problem as leaders, or we tell people, hey, just suck it up. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes people, you know, just need to suck it up. Right. But we have to be cognizant of this. And, and we have to accept the fact that uh, um, having behavioral health issues is something that is very prevalent in our armed forces. And I go back to this engaged leadership style. The more we are in, engaged as leaders and the more... We accept that if a troop says, hey, I think I may need some help, and we as the leaders make it our priority to get them the right help, I think the more we'll be able to get after this. Uh, you know, you and I have sat on, I don't know how many panels looking at this, how many different, 
you know, analyses that have been done to say, hey, here's what we need to do to get after this and everything. Um, but in the end, uh, I think it boils down to leaders at all level being engaged, understanding their uh, troops that they're responsible for, and truly caring instead of marginalizing uh a young troop that may have a issue that we may not have had when we were growing up, but uh, now they have. And I, I think the more we accept it and the more we understand that it's part of everyday life now, not only in our military and our society, then we can get after this stigma. And more importantly, we can get after folks that are looking for the uh, answer through suicide. Yeah. I, I, I would agree We've made some strides in reducing the stigma. I'll just speak about the Air Force and uh, mostly from a model that we got from SOCOM, the POTA, Preservation of the Force and Families, by embedding some of the helping agency resources into the units and kind of normalizing mental health, behavioral health, making it normal for the commander and uh, command sergeant major or the commander and the chief uh, to to go see the behavioral health um, folks and and ask for help. Where I think we still need um, work is the social stigma. So people don't fear as much. They still do a little bit, but they don't fear as much that if I ask for help, I'm going to lose my clearance. I'm going to be deniffed, not be able to fly or not be able to go to combat or not be able to arm up. What they fear mostly now is what their teammates think. And so if if I raise my hand and, and say, hey, I, I, I really need some help, is the prevailing attitude in, in my organization, yeah, man, you know, go get what you need. It's gonna be a little bit tougher for all the rest of us, but we'll take care of it. You just get better, that's the most important thing. Or is it, oh man, now this guy is uh, out again, he's having a little marriage problem, he can't handle it, and now we all have to work you know, that, that much harder. Yeah. And that pressure from peers is enough to make people say, Hey, I don't want to be that guy. So I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm just going to keep it all boiling inside. And, and then sometimes it results in, in suicide. And sometimes it results in other, you know, destructive behaviors, drugs or alcohol or abuse or something like that. So I think we, you know, and this goes right back to what you were saying about having engaged leaders and teammates uh, that make it okay, that make people feel like, hey, if you need help, I, I got it, man. The mission is tough and, and we'll get after it. But the most important thing is that you get the help that you need so that you can come back to us uh, as, a, as a healthy person. I'm going to share this here on, on this show. So I had a, some friends visiting this weekend, uh, a lady whose her, her husband served under me in uh, my striker brigade in, in Iraq during the surge. Um, but her son came with her and uh, the son's wife and their baby girl. So they came to visit. And I had a great conversation. You know, uh, the son is a very good friend of mine, and he's an Air Force veteran. And his wife is a Navy veteran. And we had a great dialogue this weekend about behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, certainly through five combat tours, but specifically Iraq, 07, 08, and Afghanistan, 11 and 12. Um, Well, throw 10 in there. You were there at the same time, you know. Um, Were some very trying times. And and these two people are with, both veterans, 
had some trying times of their own in their career fields. And it was just so refreshing to sit around and have this discussion about behavioral health, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm like 25 years older than both of them. And, uh, and one is a Navy veteran, one's an Air Force veteran. I'm a 37-year Army guy. And that we had this discussion was just so refreshing. And then, you know, my wife, Sandra, and then our good friend, you know, the mother, she was there as well. And I thought if we could just mimic this across the Department of Defense where we transcend service, we transcend generations, and we transcend service members and family members and get after the root cause of the challenges here, we will be in a much better place. And and I thought, to me, that was... That was an inspiration to me this weekend to continue to push forward with getting after this suicide and other things, you know, that the the destructive behavior stuff that you talked about. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Just about a week ago, I think, uh, we uh, named your replacement. Yes. And it happens to be an Air Force guy, Chief uh, CZ Cologne Lopez. And uh, so you guys will swap out in December. Uh, And I'm sure you'll have uh, many opportunities to give him – advice and and pass along things that you've been working on but but what would be the one piece of advice that you would give uh to cz as we as we know him as everybody uh affectionately knows him uh, coming in to be ciac number four um you got to build synergy in the senior enlisted force that means you got to be a good team player you've got to be a good listener and uh and you got to accept that uh um each service is different and each COCOM is different, and so you've got to look at the at the best out of all the services and the COCOMs, and and uh, and try to develop this synergy amongst the top twenty senior enlisted, known as the Defense Senior Enlisted Leader Council. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned CZ, and I first met CZ, I think it was six years ago when he was the 18th Fighter Wing Command Chief in Kadena, and I was at U.S. Forces Korea, and I was visiting Kadena, and and he and I. Uh, that morning, he he had all his chiefs, and he said, hey, if you want to come out and do PT with me and John Wayne, come on out. Well, nobody showed up. It was him and I. <laughs> I did have my communications NCO with me, but he, within a half mile, he had fallen out already. So it was just me and CZ on a five-mile run. And we got done with the five-mile run, and then throughout the day, he had me visiting, you know, different parts of the wing and, and went to the— uh, uh, you know, the airman leader school and, and uh, talk to the airmen in there and everything. Well, that evening he had a social and he had all these chiefs there again. And so we get there that evening for the social and there's like 20 of these chiefs there and everything. And CZ and I are the only ones having a beer. So uh, when we talk about being yourself, we mm-hmm. talk about not being afraid. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that because these guys didn't do PT or they didn't have a, an alcoholic beverage that there's something wrong with them. But I guess the point and why back then I knew CZ was somebody special is because he, he himself wasn't afraid to show who he was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then when he moved on to AFCENT and, uh, and over the last three years at AFRICOM, he has just been a great teammate, as you know, and, and he's just been a very close personal friend of mine. And I think he is the exact guy to come in and replace me. The work that he's done in on the African continent with the African nations in terms of their enlisted development and their NCO empowerment is just an example for the world to see. So 
I'm excited that he's replacing me. Yeah, no doubt. He's going to be a great uh, replacement and uh, continue on the great work that you've been doing. So if you heard that uh, that ring, I think that's a uh, special caller that we have. And uh, so I'm going to turn it back over to, to Harry to introduce the caller for us. Caller, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh, I just heard this guy's talking about me. <laughs> oh, speak of the devil. <laughs> CZ, what's up, man? How's it going, gentlemen? <laughs> what's going on, dude? Not much. Uh, just uh, over here getting some uh, work wrapped up in uh, AFRICOM and uh, just uh, looking forward to uh, uh, sharing some airspace with you there, K-Rod, and uh, be able to go ahead and uh, take over after the great work that uh, John Wayne Traxel has done for us. Yeah, thanks, man. It's great. Uh, we were. I, I was just asking Siak uh, if if he had any uh, words of advice for you coming in coming into the job, and uh, uh, you know he he talked a little bit about your your background and how you guys met. Uh, I didn't even mention that uh, CZ and I uh, we got into the command chief business at the same time. I think it was either 2011 or 2012. And uh, so we've been uh, colleagues and friends ever since. And everybody's pretty excited. Somebody stopped by the office this morning and uh, and was excited and asking about when you were arriving. So, man, everybody's pretty excited. And, and uh, so we'll be not necessarily the first, but the first on this podcast to say congratulations to you as SEAC uh, number four. Very much appreciated. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to the, to the honor of uh, filling the position as an airman. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, with, uh, leaders like yourself and the other service, uh, senior enlisted leaders and, uh, the hard work of, uh, of the current SEAC, uh, John Wade and Troxel, uh, definitely big combat boots to fill, man, but we're up to task. Hey man, what are you most excited about coming into the job? I think it's, uh, an opportunity to continue to influence, uh, the decisions and the courses of action that affect the enlisted force, you know, across the services. Uh, clearly that has been the most exciting thing about being a command chief is to be able to affect change. And I think, uh, that change is going to be a constant, it's going to be needed. And I think that we need the right voice at the right levels to be able to, uh, do the best we can for our service members. Hey, we also talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, how do we maintain, uh, balance? So you're coming into a pretty big job, John, um, kept about a 270 day uh, travel schedule uh, I'm, I'm about the same maybe a little bit less a little bit more every year uh, I'm not sure what your plan is I know you have to get here and look at it but you have any initial thoughts on how you'll be able to maintain balance uh, with the job the requirements and uh, and I know Janet is a is a is a big uh, outdoors person and, and she'll have her own things that she'll want to do with you uh, what are your initial thoughts about, you know, how do you stay balanced and, and stay resilient? Balance is something that we have had 20 plus years of practice, uh, especially since uh, Janet and I have been together uh, the majority of my time as a pararescueman. So this is uh, nothing that is foreign to us. Uh, the one thing that I know uh, that helps us balance that uh, lack of time together is the ability to have a great time when we're together. Man, both of us have a great sense of humor and uh, we just love to laugh about everything. So uh, we find ways and we put ourselves in position to be able to go ahead and uh, share laughs, sometimes at the expense of one another. But uh, that is something that much like you and Tanya, you know, and John and Sandra, 
uh, it's something that we have become really good at. So I don't expect my tempo to be any less than what uh, you two are experiencing right now. And it's just a necessity of the duty to be able to have uh, FaceTime and engagement with the troops. I think we both, and, and I'll let SIAC uh, jump in here in a second. We both, uh, we'll, we'll give you some some thoughts uh, once you get here, man, on, on uh, you might keep the same tempo, but a little bit more measured. Uh, John talked earlier about this being a marathon. We both started off in a in a big sprint, and uh, but we're gonna we're gonna help you with with the marathon concept, and and so you don't find yourself in the same boat as as uh, he and I. No, and and you know lessons learned are probably like the greatest source of uh, future successes, man. So I look forward to hearing you guys' take on it. The one thing I've loved about you uh, ever since I've known you is that uh, you're not afraid to let people know that you're human. And Kay Wright have been, and I have been talking about this, that a, a great aspect of us as a leader is to not forget where you came from and not be afraid to show young men and women that uh, we're human just like they are. What are your thoughts, brother? No, I think that uh, being who you are and uh, exposing your uh, vulnerabilities are uh, one of the greatest ways to connect with people. Uh, it humanizes you. It lets them know that, hey, things haven't been perfect all the way through, but uh, damn it, there's a way that you can get out of it. And when they look at the three of us, they can say, well, if they could, I can definitely freaking make it there. Uh, so, but uh, I think that that is a quality that the three of us have is that we have never been shy of being ourselves around people. Um, a lot of airmen still mention that. A lot of soldiers and sailors that I have uh, come in contact with, they say that the, the, the comfort level that they had making a phone call or reaching out to me via email was the reason they ended up uh, bringing, uh, bringing their issues to another uh, level. But, uh, man, I think it's important. And I think uh, the second uh, we sell our souls to become something we're not and even more dangerously to give the perception of something we're not eventually catches up to you. Hey, I got one last question. Um, you have done a phenomenal job as the U.S. Uh, AFRICOM Command Senior Enlisted Leader in your efforts over the last three-plus years in uh, building uh, enlisted development, building NCO development on the African continent has been the blueprint for what we should be doing globally. Now, as uh, your battle space goes from just the African continent to the, uh, the globe, um, what are your thoughts on continuing to get after line of effort number two in our national defense strategy of attract, or assuring allies and attracting new partners? So uh, thanks for bringing that up, John, because you know that I have been working with, uh, with Zigafoos over at Southcom uh, to be able to go ahead and help them create a, a similar model to what we're doing in, in AFRICOM. I think that uh, the, the strategy that we laid out to be uh, more deliberate with our engagements, to ensure accountability and get the greatest return on investment, is a, is a good uh, mechanism to utilize globally. Uh, I'm definitely going to spend a lot of time not only talking to our COCOMs, but also to our allies to be able to go ahead and cross share uh, some of these initiatives and also some of the uh, funding mechanisms and efforts that go along with it. But I think that collectively, 
you have built enough relationships globally to where I can follow on with, uh, with what you have done and be able to go ahead and advance uh, uh, strategies like the Africa Listed Development Strategy uh, forward with the other combatant commands. But it's all about the relationships, man. Hey, great point, man, relationships. And uh, hey, we, we want to say uh, thank you, SEAC number four. Uh, man, we're all excited for you. The Air Force is just beaming. Uh, you being the first Air Force um, uh, combatant, uh, I mean, command senior enlisted leader to, to hold this position. So we're excited. Uh, I know you'll be here in a couple of months. So just keep us posted on how you're doing, man. And uh, we look forward to, I think, both uh, SEAC number three and I look forward to sitting down with you and, uh, you know, sharing a beer and sharing some leadership thoughts uh, once, you, once you get to town. No, absolutely. And uh, likewise, I look forward to, uh, to joining the ranks there and be able to go ahead and uh, continue the work. All right. Thanks, brother. Take care, brother. All right, Siak, we're coming to the end of our time. And uh, so, man, let me just personally thank you for sharing this time. Uh, I want to personally thank you for um, all the, the, most importantly, the friendship. Uh, we, we initially met, I think somebody linked us up in Israel. Israel, and, yes. And uh, we sat down and had dinner. I, I believe I was at 3rd Air Force at the you time. You were, yeah. And, uh, and, and we've just been, uh, I would say, great friends and great colleagues. Absolutely. And ever since, you've been a huge supporter of uh, our United States Air Force and all of our airmen and just been a tremendous role model for, for all of us. And, man, I, I really appreciate everything you've done for me and uh, for all of our service members. But uh, so th this has been great. Yeah, thank you so much, Kay. Right, you are um, just the epitome of what a leader is and all of the attributes and qualities we look uh, for a leader. You, you know, embody them and you display them on any given day. I appreciate you allowing me to get out and visit airmen around the world and to be part of your forums as well. And my party message to the force out there you know in in less than 60 days i'm going to be uh trying to figure out what kind of hairdo and and <laughs> you know i want to wear and whether i can grow a beard you know i couldn't grow a beard when i was 18 years old when i joined and i haven't had one in 37 years so i don't know if i can grow one or not but i'm gonna darn sure try yeah all right but you know when we say that the men and women that serve in the United States military are part of the greatest military on the planet, that is not arrogance, and that is not, uh, you know, trying to make us out better than our allies and partners or anybody else out there. But when you look, there's no other nation on the world that makes that kind of commitment to global peace and security. So to the men and women out there, um, it, be proud that you're part of the greatest air force in the world and the greatest armed forces in the world but that comes with uh, responsibility and that comes with um, you know uh, duties that say every day you got to be striving for excellence you got to continue to get better every day as we've talked over the last hour plus you got to get better every day and you can't settle for just good enough you got to continue to get better so I would tell you to the force out there uh, I know three things. Uh, I know we have the greatest military in the world. I know that uh, we can defend our homeland and way of life, and we have greatest we have competitive warfighting advantages in every traditional d domain out there. But again, that comes with responsibility. And when I walk away on 13 December, I am going to be the biggest fan 
of this United States military because I know we're in great hands as we move forward because we've got great leaders. We've got great men and women. They're going to carry this military far beyond uh, SEAC 3 time and, and SIMSAF 18 time. You know what I mean? So uh, thank you so much uh, for your leadership. But more importantly, thank you to you and Tanya for a friendship that you've shown Sandra and I. And I look forward to uh, bourbon and cigars in the future when we're both working on our hairdos. You know? yeah. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Yeah, man. You, you heard it here. Uh, first, SEAC uh, number three said it best. Um, if better is possible, good is never enough. That's right. And you are your greatest competition. So this, uh, once again, this has been the Blueprint Leadership Podcast. And I want to thank our first and very special guest, uh, the senior, senior enlisted advisor to the chairman, uh, Command Sergeant Major John Wayne Troxell. Thanks thank again, you very John. much. We, we appreciate Air you. Air power. All right. Cool.